you couldn't buy a better quote from Larry Willis, who says, you know, I don't mind being the underdog because being the underdog gives me a reason to fight. I mean, we're in the middle of a, of a diner in the Bronx. <laughs> People, you know, going by with orders of eggs and whatnot. And, and, he, and, and he says that. And it was just like, it hit me like, damn. This is Brian Paris with Sounds of Berkeley. It's not unusual to hear someone talk about jazz music's ability to tell a story, even when there are no lyrics. But then there are musicians like acclaimed trumpeter Jeremy Pelt who consider passing on the story of jazz as part of the calling. In his new book, Griot, examining the lives of jazz's great storytellers, Pelt, who graduated from Berkeley in 1998, shares interviews with jazz musicians whose careers span from the 1950s to the present day including the likes of Paul West, Terry Lynn Carrington, Ambrose Akamusiri, and many others. Pelt also released a companion album of original compositions built around some of the conversations in the book. In this episode, Pelt talks about what moved him to take on this project and shares highlights from some of his interviews. He also takes a moment to reflect on the legacy of drummer and beloved faculty member Ralph Peterson Jr., who recently passed away. Our conversation begins with a discussion of the word griot, a West African tradition of oral history, which inspired the title of the book and the album. I wondered if we could start, uh, especially for those that are maybe unfamiliar with the griot term and role, if you could talk a little bit about what that means to you. I saw one definition of griot, and I know there's a bunch of them, but I like this more lyrical one of a living archive of people's traditions, um, Mm. which I thought was so cool. And to kind of see how you've come into that role yourself through the book. Well, you know, so the importance of what a griot is, is connected to the African diaspora. And uh, when I read the definition of what it was and understood what a griot was, um, it really uh, resonated with me because it falls in line with the tradition of how many things were taught um, in Africa and are still taught um, in the past. And, and, it, and it filters into how many things are, are transmitted in, uh, in today's times in, in, a, in a lot of different disciplines, but especially when it comes to music um, and, and being able to, to pass down stories um, from other generations to, you know, future generations. That's a very important concept um, in jazz uh, in particular. And it also uh, translates into other parts of your life, too. So it's not just jazz, even though the focus here is jazz, as, as far as the book is concerned. But, I mean, really... Uh, when you have oral history that's passed down to you in any kind of form, that's, uh, that, that is related to the word as well. So for me, um, one of the earliest stories that I was talking about is how my grandfather told me plenty of stories and anecdotes from when he was a child, you know, and, and my grand, you know, my mother told me stories about her grandfather, uh, that she remembered, you know, so I mean, things like this mean something to me and contribute to your overall uh, fiber as a human being. I think partly why I'm thinking about this too and how it relates to your story is because the thing that stitches the book together is in fact you. I mean, it's, you know, the, the primary voices are, are 
the people you're interviewing and obviously what they bring to the table. But the thing that kind of anchors us is you. And so I'm, I'm interested in a little bit about kind of what pushed you to, to write the story, to be like, this is the thing that I have to do. And I, and I sort of saw that as either a combination or one of the two of these things, but either you had sort of gathered a lot of this information and just stories passed down to you. And you're like, everyone should know this stuff versus maybe your own curiosity of like, I want to know this stuff. Well, one of the chief things that, that, that really led me to deciding that I have to be the one is because there was a need for it, that uh, it hadn't been met. You know, uh, one of the things that, that I've been saying a lot in interviews uh, thus far is, um, it, I, I was part of the uh, the group called the uh, the Somebody Shoulds, and what that means is that you know you, for the longest time you know I'd been as as long as I'd been aware of notes and tones, Art Taylor's notes and tones, I was always saying somebody should do something like this for this generation. Somebody should do this. Somebody should do. Somebody should write this. Somebody should interview them. Somebody, right? And never at one point did it ever occur to me that I should be that somebody. So once I made that transition from being the somebody should to I should, then, you know, the, the mission became that clear, you know, because see, something like Notes and Tones, the magic about that is that at any given point in my career, it means something completely different. You know what I mean? So when I first read it, I didn't know about life. I was 17 years old, right? So now coming and then, and then you know, maybe a few years later at 21, I read it and suddenly some of the stories might resonate a, a different type of way. Then at 30, it resonates a different type of way. Then at 40, now I'll be 45 this year. This year. Now, I'm, in many cases, the same age as a lot of these people, these musicians were when they were interviewed. You know, so I mean, it's, it's there's there's that, and I, and so and in that way, the book grows with you. That's really powerful, and it goes back to that living archive, right? This idea that it changes, you know, at different points of your life, because you just don't know what's going to speak to you in that moment or what you need to hear. Um, so there's, there is like the sense that it's also like a living document, which I think is really cool. Um, you interview people from all ages and experiences, you know, over the last, really almost over the last century, you know, from Paul West to Ambrose Akamusiri. And, I wonder what was that like for you to kind of walk through such a specific, you know, uh, version of the sort of modern history of jazz? Well, there's, there's something to be said for, uh, you know, uh, interactions between musicians and um, especially, you know, musicians that are, you know, kindred souls and of kinfolk, you know, very different kind. Um, and so the interaction uh, between us is is was was fairly easy to achieve because of the fact that uh, we we shared a certain amount of time together in the first place. Um, that made a lot of the questions easier to ask um, because I knew that they their guards were down up until the point that I actually started. Uh, transcribing the interviews, I had already had a good 35 interviews in, in my vault, anyhow, of what I was going to use. And so I would say that in most cases on those interviews, there was something that was profound that the, 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 the subject said that just popped into my head immediately. And I said, this is going to be the quote that I use. 
and the chapters are set up like that. So it's the person's name and then the, uh, a, a pull quote before the chapter starts. And everything, you know, when there were certain things that I heard that I was like, this is going to be the pull quote, you know, and, and that made me excited. Then at that moment, you know, so it was either because also I should say that this this book is released in tandem with an album that I did with the same name. And so it was either I was going to use what they said as a title to a song or I was going to use it as a pull quote. But there was uh, like somebody like you couldn't buy a better quote from Larry Willis, who says, you know, I don't mind being the underdog. Because being an underdog gives me a reason to fight. I mean, we're in the middle of a of a diner in the Bronx. <laughs> People, you know, going by with orders of eggs and whatnot, and and he and, and he says that, and it was just like it hit me like, damn. I don't mind being an underdog because <laughs> the under being an underdog gives me a reason to fight. It's so interesting too because I was just thinking about how hearing that, being able to hear that quote in the moment and kind of to have that spark go off, um, even before you mentioned the the Grio uh, Companion album that you did, that I wondered if that was almost connected to or a connected skill to being a musician, to recognizing a theme or you know a refrain or or kind of a main riff or something that you know that's the thing I'm going to work with. So in in your case, that is exactly what you did. You sort of took some of that stuff and not only used it as anchors for the book, but to create this companion piece. So I'd love to hear a little bit about composing the music for that. Yeah, when I was a, a student at Berkeley, my major was film scoring. So I've always had this kind of inkling and, and inclination, rather, to to match the visual with music. Um, now, obviously, this isn't visual. This is uh, spoken word, but it's still the same kind of concept when you think about the tone of what you want to create. So for me, when I hear certain things like carry Christ wherever you are, it evokes uh, a certain tonality of, and and certain type of regal na- nature to a piece automatically. So it gives me an idea of how I want to be led through something. You know, when Bertha Hope says, you know, I'm just fighting for a seat at the table, that's the very, you know, different kind of tone that I go for. So I'm always uh, striving for for the tone of, of what is said and trying to match the music to that. Which again goes right back to this idea of being a griot, that the, the poet, musician, the, you know, the, the song storyteller. I don't think I wear a label on I'm not an activist as, as such, but I am a proud black woman uh, in an industry that where black women have had to struggle for a seat at the table, you know. 
I don't know if this brings it to too somber of, of a moment, but um, I wondered, I know you worked with Ralph Peterson um, on a number of albums and mm-hmm. just in light of his passing and kind of what he meant to, you know, the Berkeley community for so long. I mean, just such a Titan and, uh, and a mentor to so many. I wondered if you, uh, you know, wouldn't mind talking a little bit about sort of some memories of Ralph or just, you know, thoughts uh, on his passing and his legacy. Certainly. And I did interview Ralph, too. He'll, his interview will come out in another uh, version. He was somebody that was very uh, generous with his knowledge and, wanted, and and very excited about sharing his knowledge, which is, is an important thing to being an educator. You know what I mean? He was never... Um, he was never stingy with, with, with that. You know, he always wanted to, to share knowledge. Um, you know, we, we had great times playing and recording and he was just always, he was like a kid. You know what I mean? He'd come in with a, a, a composition and he was a man, he was a musician and a man, but, uh, specific to the music. He was a musician and composer of tremendous vision. Which is which is an important thing to have if you're going to be, especially in a leadership role, where you have to have a tremendous vision about the whole thing around you and not just you. And that was something that that uh, was an invaluable lesson that I learned from Ralph was seeing the whole picture. It's great that you were able to get an interview. I was going to ask actually. I noticed you know that volume one on the cover of the book. So you kind of put a promise out there. What are the plans going forward with that? My plans going forward is just to release future volumes. I mean, like I said, before I even, I mean, I I had 35 interviews at the end of 2020. You know what I mean? So that was already enough. I mean, I was trying to figure out what was a good number of interviews to include in the book that wouldn't come out like the Webster's Dictionary. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I arrived at 15. So, you know, my thought going forward is, okay, I'm going to have, you know, various volumes, maybe as many as four or five volumes of 15 interviews each one, because I've got enough to, to fill that. That's so cool. Doesn't it doesn't take a long tour of your biography to notice the fruits of that? Just you know, like just the amount of your discography and this project alone, and, and kind of what you have planned for it. So, I look forward to all that stuff. Thank you so much for um, talking with us about the about the book. Thank you. Jeremy Pelt's book Grio: Examining the Lives of Jazz's Great Storytellers, Volume One, is available through his website, JeremyPelt.net. The book's accompanying album of original music called Grio, This Is Important, some of which you heard in this episode, can also be found through Pelt's website, as well as on all major streaming platforms. This episode was engineered by Rodrigo Martins. Our theme music is by Sleeping Lion. I'm Brian Paris, and this is Sounds of Berkeley.